everyone. Welcome to another episode of A New Kind of Celebrity. I'm your host Venal and I'm excited to bring you another inspiring and insightful conversation this week. At A New Kind of Celebrity, we define the word celebrity differently. We define it as someone worth celebrating. Our guests are people who are doing incredible work to make this world a better place. Join us as we celebrate these individuals and learn from their experiences, leadership and wisdom. In this episode, we celebrate Ms. Shailaja Chandra. Ms. Shailaja Chandra was a member of the Indian Administrative Service who distinguished herself in several assignments including as secretary in the Ministry of Health and later as Delhi's only woman chief secretary. Apart from this, she spent 15 years with the central government where she held assignments in the Ministry of Defence, Power and Health. She has been posted in Maharashtra, Manipur, Goa, Delhi and the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. After retiring, Ms Chandra held a series of assignments including as the chairman of the Public Grievance Committee and appellate authority under the Delhi Right to Information Act and as the first executive director of the National Population Stabilization Fund under the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare. In this conversation we demystify governance, a word we speak about often but aren't always privy to the inside workings. Thank you so much for joining in for this conversation. We're very excited to have you and just learn a lot about your experience and hopefully through that just expand our horizons. So thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to say that it's a new kind of experience for me and I hope I tell your viewers and listeners something of relevance to them. I'm sure you will. I think with the wealth of experience, time won't be enough to cover everything that you could share. I'd love if you could maybe just start with telling us a little bit about your journey and how did you end up becoming an IAS officer? Well, it was quite a strange background. You see, I came from a civil servant's family, both father and mother, and so as a child I had heard the dinner table conversation was always about things that happened in the office corruption in high places corruption in the office how somebody did something right and somebody did something wrong so those kinds of values were dinned into my head but i wasn't exactly an academically oriented person i was much more interested in being on the stage debates dramatics anything that had a public communication aspect right. and my parents and my brother treated me as though you know i mean she'll she'll get married and settle down they never had any doubts on that and i must say that i didn't take academics all that seriously i was keen to get a honors degree in english literature which i did i joined ma for about 10 days and i said i don't want to do more chaucer and spencer <laughs> i walked out took a copy test and uh, got into j walter thompson at the age of 19 wow and it was um great fun i thought i was doing brilliantly because i was writing great copy great headlines on the sidelines earning money modeling so that was wonderful but then we went to the academy the national academy of administration in missouri where all the senior civil servants are trained and my brother was then in the foreign service he is older than me and more senior than me obviously my mother was with me and we were going on a walk when He just said, you know, on Monday morning you can go back and you can get thrown out. I said, why would anyone throw me out? He said, you're the junior most, you can be retrenched. So I said, 
why would they do that? They like my work. So he said, you're in the private sector. Besides, the most important aspect is you are just selling coffee and towels and things like that. Don't you want to work at a national level? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, and it's beyond you. You won't get into the IAS, so let's forget it. It was his challenge. You won't get into the IAS. Mm -hmm. That really spurred me. And the second comment, oh, if you want to try, try for one of the other services first before you try for the IAS. That got my goat. I said, what does he think I am? And so I studied quietly on my own while doing rehearsals and doing all kinds of giddy things in the daytime. But at night, I would study very hard on my own. And I got in first shot. So that was great. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so interesting to see the journey and what actually led you to come here. And if you can tell us, what has it been like? So when you think back to your early days, when you just joined, what was it like? What were some anecdotes that you can remember right now that you'd like to share with us? Well, you see, I was a very urbane, sophisticated person, gone to good schools, good colleges, was very, very sure of myself, confident. But I had no inkling about rural India, remember. Mm. And I was in the company of people who came from a much less privileged background. But in a way, I was a fish out of water because in their company, their jokes, their conversations were not what I was accustomed to. And I realized Goodness, that's the mainstream. And what I know and what I am good at is of no relevance to those people. They don't even want to know about what you've achieved hmm. on the stage or whatever. So I remember being posted as a magistrate in uh, the Tisazari courts. It was a single district. The deputy commissioner was one of the most powerful people in the city, of course. And he sent for all of us. We were all young magistrates. About nine of us walked into his room at eight o'clock at night and he met us once a month. So he looked at me and he said, "My, I'm a Maharashtrian. So he said, yes, Ms. Dume, what are your problems? You know, he started with me and what are your problems? So I immediately said, Sir, I'm in the Parliament Street Courts and I'm sitting in a room which was the dressing room of the old superintendent of police who occupied the bungalow. There's no fan there and the lawyers are really screaming at me saying that it's your job to get a fan installed. We can't be talking to you with black coats without a fan. And I have tried to tell the Nazareth officer, but he said it will take a long time. Tenders have been called. So I thought I would get a little sympathy. Instead, he looked at me and said, in Hindi, Jaise ki har taluka Maharashtra mein aapke liye pankhe rakhe hai. Chaiye. And he threw me out. I mean, so that was my first brush with trying to ask for something which was such a small necessity, an essential thing, a fan. But the way he looked at it was, you know nothing about rural India and you have the cheek to come to me and ask for a fan. And you're a lowly little junior officer. Can you not be more resourceful than to ask me? He threw me out on that. And there was a lot of tittering among all the men around the table because they thought that I'd been put in my place. It had a great effect on me because I realized then, very early in service, always be careful what you say to whom, because you will be the one who will be put down if you're junior. You will not be able to react and you will feel humiliated. Don't allow those situations to arise. Hmm. The second thing that struck me earlier in the service was the fact that you have to learn to project your work. 
you may work extremely hard. And I was doing so many warrant cases. I was writing by hand the evidence. I had the Almat, I had the Peshkar, I had everybody writing for me. I used to write long judgments. I was so, so, I would say, meticulous in my work. And yet, I was not able to do what my colleagues could do, which is to play billiards in the evening and go off home by six o'clock. I was just plodding and I was thinking, what's wrong with me? Then I realized that in a way you have to learn a street smart way of solving things. And I realized that what was happening then was that all the cases were being compromised. Every compromise between the accused and the state or with the complainant became one warrant case. So in two minutes, you got one, which I would have taken a month to get that one. So I learned that you have to be street smart. Right. That's really interesting. And both the examples makes me just wonder, what we know is that getting to the IS is not easy, right? You hear stories of people taking it again and again, or studying for really, really long hours for a long time in preparation. So clearly, there are a lot of very, very capable people entering the system. And yet we also know on the other hand that the most common complaint of a layperson is that, you know, things don't work as they should work, right? Either there's a lot of paperwork or somehow just things don't seem to be moving or working as planned. If you can sort of help us understand what's it like on the inside? Where have you seen moments where you felt like you have had impact? And what has that been and what does it look like? And maybe later we can talk about where does it get stuck? And what are some solutions around that? The thing about being in the IAS is the good part. You are sitting on a chair where 80%, 90%, the decisions you take are not questioned. Hmm. You're supposed to be having the intelligence, the common sense, and the knowledge to be able to take the right decision. What happens very often is that Officers get submerged by the paperwork that comes. Files will come in mountains to you. And the very sight of those files, you know, pressurizes you to want to clear those files. Hmm. You think every file is an act of, you might say, administration. It is not. And I will fast forward a little bit because I realized this much, much later. So I'm trying to bring to the table what I did not know earlier and I came to know later. If you can find a real life example of what is going on in the world, which you are in charge of, hmm. you can extrapolate that one example to make it into policy. I'll give you an example. When I was in the Public Grievances Commission, which was long after I became chief secretary, when I was master of everything under me, I went to the Public Grievance Commission and for the first time in my life, citizens would come and complain and they would be from the poorest of the poor saying, we did not get ration for the last two months. Hmm. The kerosene man just pulls down the shutter within half an hour. The thumb impression is not mine. These were people. There were professors who would come to me and say there is rampant unauthorized construction going on. We have balconies coming up here and there which are not allowed. Our sunshine has been stopped. Will you do something about it? And I realized, I said, when I called the corporation, they used to hem and haw and say that, you know, they would try and pop me off. But because I had authority, I realized that that one thing became a reason to make it into policy. Like you could recommend that 
if kerosene has to be given, you have to have more than a thumb impression to know whether the right people got it. Hmm. You have to know if there is unauthorized construction going on. You have to raise the level. I could raise the level. Citizens could not. But right. I could help to make policy which made it incumbent on people to look at the complaints which were coming and not allow them to be just, you know, put under the carpet right at the lowest level. So I would only say the IS means all senior government officers get submerged under paperwork. They get submerged under fresh priorities, crisis situations, which come in the last two, three hours, hmm. not in the last two, three days. And they take over whatever you had planned to do. Right. So it's difficult to keep abreast of what your own priorities are and what the official priorities are and what the political priorities are. So with all that, the only way that you can sort of keep your head above water is to see that you do files. And I'm not saying that everyone can do it. You have to have a very supportive family to tolerate that. But you have to carry files home and do that kind of work undisturbed in the house when mm. there are no phone calls. In those days, you had landlines, so there were no mobiles. So you do all that work and that gets cleared in no time if you have no disturbance. Mm. But this kind of human interface is what tells you where the shoe pinches. Right. And uh, that's, I would say, the tough part because often you attend meetings all day. The meetings are important. They're not just talk shops. A lot of the work that gets done is done after seven o'clock. Hmm. All the major decisions are taken in the office after seven o'clock. So whether you're a man or a woman, you go and say, I have, you know, this problem at home, I'm leaving. You will be marginalized, whether man or woman, you will get marginalized because the people who are in charge will say, you're not up to it. You're not going to tour on a Saturday. You can't be sent anywhere to check on something on a Sunday. You're the type of person who is very highly domesticated, whatever your problems may be. Some are serious problems. But I think that if you can find a way of time management that you're able to equally, equally or to some extent, be able to apportion time in a way that you have paperwork separate from meetings, from public dealings. If you have an hour set aside for public dealings, you insist. Why, why is there no public? How come nobody has come to me? That means the message has not gone. Hmm. That means your personal office has just, you know, got rid of people who were trying to meet you. Hmm. Ask for the register. How many telephone calls were there? First time they said there were no telephone calls. I said, no, but the phone was ringing 20 times. I could hear it. Whose call was it? Record it. Let me know. If somebody called me by chance, I would say, how many times have you rung up? That way you put the system on check and don't just sit back and say, nobody came to me. So there is no problem. Right. That's really interesting. And with all of this, given all the limitations that you mentioned and the constraints of the work and the hours and managing different priorities, what are places where you've seen it work really well in your experience where you feel like these were the projects where we actually had a lot of impact? I think there would be several, but I would say that two or three where we were able to make, where I was personally able to, with the help, of course, of enormous number of people, make a dent, were three, which I remember now, which stand out. One was the blindness control program, which we did with World Bank Assistance. One was bringing CNG, that is the compressed natural gas, in all public transport in Delhi and phasing out diesel completely. That was in the year 2002, many, mm. many years ago. 
And number three, what really stands out is the privatization of power. I was chief secretary. I played a supervisory role, not a direct role. But how that worked in all three, there's one commonality. There was a challenge. There mm. was a challenge which made you want to do it. And you did it out of a belief that I'm going to make some difference to people's lives. This is an opportunity. And everybody who worked with you felt motivated that this opportunity is not going to come back. Do it. Now, I'll dwell on these three examples briefly. One was the blindness control project with World Bank assistance. You know, we had a lot of people with cataract blindness in the whole country, but the prevalence showed seven states had more. Okay. And cataract in those days meant that Motia Bindu, people used to take it out in the camp surgery. A lot of surgeries went awry. People were given those big glasses, those black ones. They sat on a cot and had to be taken to the toilet because they were not able to see till they had the mm. operation, which was not successful very often. So I was told by the minister when I joined, he said, look, this will give us and you personally a lot of goodwill. Why can't you do it? Your predecessor couldn't do it. Before that, it has failed. I'm giving you this as a challenge. Let us see if you can do it. I was hmm. a week old in the minute. The secretary was not that nice. He just told me, he says, your predecessor failed and you're bound to fail. But anyway, the minister wants you to do it. Go ahead. He was very brusque. And my predecessor who handed over charge to me, I said, where are the blindness papers, blindness control project papers? She said, oh, they're on that bundle on top of the cupboard. The bundle hadn't ever been dusted, so obviously nothing was happening. And I just felt this is something which we have to do. And I do remember that we started writing to the seven health secretaries. We called them to Delhi. We told them what a difference you'll make to people's lives. The World Bank came and they said, we will not tolerate any camp surgeries. You have to transport every villager who has a problem to the district hospital and put an interocular lens. In those days, that was unheard of. Okay. And we did actually 11 million cataract surgeries in wow. seven states in a matter of five years. You know, it was one of the projects which the World Bank has listed as one of the best. And I would say my contribution was only to be able to motivate my colleagues in seven states. They were so busy with malaria, leprosy, TB. Blindness was, no one is dying from blindness. So what's the big deal? Hmm. And I also was motivated because a World Bank project manager had come to my room and told me, Mrs. Chandra, three times this has been rejected. I don't know what more rhetoric you're going to bring to the table, but I don't see any future for this project, but you're welcome to try that got my goat. I said, who are these people? We are taking a loan from them. They're not giving a gift to us. Why are they, I mean, talking in this manner? So in a way, that was one. The second case was the CNG. It was a Supreme Court order. We had not obeyed the order for two years. And the transport commissioner came to my room as soon as I took over as chief secretary. And she said, ma'am, I think, you know, you and I will have to go to jail because the Supreme Court has said, we don't care what you've been doing for two years. You have done nothing. So she said, we have to phase out these 200 buses a month, if not more, because we've got to make up for the backlog. Plus, we have to get the cascades of CNG. We have to see that the buses have the cascades on top. We have to see that the lines are laid underground day and night. 
And we have to see that the bus body building for CNG is got done at 36 different places. So I said, are you equal to it? So she said, I am equal to it. But all I'm saying is, let there be no interference. If you leave me to do it, I'll do it. So I said, I'll ensure that there's no interference. And I met the chief minister and I said, Madam, if you do not leave us to do this the way we want to, and you start listening to lobbies of scooter drivers and lobbies of, you might say, diesel bus owners and all, we won't be able to move. You'll have to go along because the Supreme Court mandate gets everyone into trouble. And she accepted that and she did not interfere. With the result, we did all those things, mainly done by the officers. You could feel the difference in the air. You know, it was wow. that wonderful. It was the world's largest fleet of environmental friendly buses in the whole world. We got awarded by the wow. U.S. Department of Energy. Yes, and it was. I had to make a speech there and I, I was so thrilled. Third example was the uh, privatization of power. I had very little to do with it. But I was the senior most civil servant in charge of the government administration of Delhi. And I do remember that privatization meant that a huge monolith called the Delhi Youth Board, extremely corrupt, what would be wound up, would be taken over by private companies. And overnight, the staff would get transferred to a private entity. And it was the month of, I think, June. It happened and it was something which was, you know, on the TV all over. But then after we did it, there was so much of, you might say, pressure from so many ends. And worst was when on the television, politicians and even your own colleagues went to town saying there has been rampant corruption in this deal. Hmm. These officers have made money. You know, when you when you know that you have not touched a penny, maybe politically somebody did. I have no idea. Hmm. We were only keen that something where even if you paid your electricity bill, it didn't go into the government coffer. And very often, even to pay a bill was itself a hurdle. Right. And we had the general manager being called the Prince of Darkness, the general manager. So you can imagine how bad Delhi was. Eight hours of power cuts. So when that changed, it was a great thrill. Yes. So interesting. I have so many different thoughts in my mind as you're sharing this. I think the first one is, how do these priorities almost get determined? Because there might be so many areas of work and every place is in a different kind of need. So if you can take any one example, I'm sure there would have been other competing priorities as well. So when you enter a role, you've just entered a department, how does the priority sort of get determined? Is it based on what public is sort of saying in the grievance session? Is it based on like political priorities or do the officers sort of determine it after taking an analysis? It's a very good question, I must say. I would say that under the constitution, policy is made by the political executive, the hmm. cabinet of that state or the central cabinet. Policy has to be made on issues before civil servants start implementing that policy. So whereas you can do day-to-day -day work and do it exceedingly well, if you want to change policy, it will have to have the approval of the government, which means the political executive. I'll give right. you an example. I had just joined the health ministry and I was called by the secretary and told an ordinance has to issue bringing medical education on the concurrent list of the constitution. 
So uh, he said, go to the law ministry. They will prepare the bill, carry the bill back, get the approval of the minister. I will see that the approval of the prime minister is taken at night and it will issue at midnight. Uh, get on with it. Just get on. It was about, I think, four o'clock in the afternoon when he told me something which maybe we would have tried for months and years and never have happened. But there was an angle to it why the prime minister wanted to do it. I won't go into that. But that is when it comes as a fiat from above. Hmm. The other is when you want to push something from below. Look at tobacco control. There are lobbies and uh, people who are um, growers of tobacco. There are big tobacco companies. There are BD rollers. There's a lot of, um, you might say, human manpower involved in the tobacco industry. At the same time, it is the single largest cause of cancer of the mouth, the throat. So you knew as a civil servant because you had access to so many people and so much research to tell you it had to be done. You had to put some embargo. You may not stop it, but you have to warn public. And so we only wanted to put warnings which showed, you know, how your throat gets affected and things like that. And we were being stopped at every stage. There was a hiccup. So it meant convincing the minister and taking the matter right up to cabinet and pushing it with data, with, you know, lots of research. If you had a right minded kind of a minister, it sailed through. If you had a person who said oh, it's not a big deal compared to so many other things which are happening, you would not be able to move. So hmm. that's where, you know, you have to draw a distinction where you as an officer can do something where you cannot do something. And I would say the third area is when there is a large movement, whether it is Supreme Court, as in the case of CNG, which was the force behind this whole, you know, giving up of diesel, or it is a public uh, demand. And if the public demand is strong enough, politicians have to listen. And right. when they listen, they make policy. You help to craft that policy and then you implement it. But that comes because it could be genuine public demand. It could be lobbies at work. If it is lobbies at work which have a commercial interest, obviously you have to be on your guard and try and write strong notes to say, this is only with view to helping such and such industry. Hmm. It is not going to help the public, but you have to steer it. But you do need for all major policies, the approval of the government, which is the political executive. Right. And it almost sounds like the role of the officer is so challenging because you can see maybe priorities, but you're focused on the implementation. If you need policy change, like you said, you have to get the approvals. So in terms of when you're trying to execute something, what are the different roadblocks when something doesn't get executed, right? Let's say you do have the political will, you have gotten approval from there. And yet sometimes there are roadblocks and you aren't able to do something. What are those that come in on the implementation side? There are enormous roadblocks. Even between two ministries, there will be roadblocks. You know, the vision of one ministry will be very different from the other. For instance, I was looking after HIV AIDS. The whole question of men having sex with men is something which is a reality and was leading to this kind of, you might say, transmission of HIV AIDS. Right. So the health ministry was very keen that don't sodomize it because if you sodomize it, it will not stop. It will just go underground. Right. Whereas the, the reaction of the then Ministry of Home Affairs was this is a crime under the Indian Penal Code and we will not budge. So there would be fights of that kind, interministerial. 
And it was difficult to take the matter to the cabinet because unless everyone agrees, it cannot reach the cabinet. So that's mm. a huge challenge. The other challenge comes when you find that there is a political element. The politics is overtaking the need to do something. When that happens, officers face huge problems because they get cut between the seriousness of a situation and the fact that somebody is being touted as uh, useless because one kind of a state or that kind of a state. And that happened over my entire career when everything was looked at politically and you found that the best made projects were allowed to be just delayed or shelved because there was a political element. So it is very challenging. The only thing officers can do at that stage, which I must say my secretary when I was in the health ministry did do it extremely well, but most people don't bother to do it. He used to write letters to the finance ministry, he used to write to the prime minister's office, and he used to bring out what is going to happen if you sit on this, you might say, live coal. Hmm. And I would say that by taking the initiative, walking into people's rooms, he took me with him. So I, I knew how to do it. You just knock. You don't take an appointment. You said, can I drop in for a minute? There's no officer who will say, get out. So after all, you're a secretary to government. And you sit for two minutes and you explain this is critical. Once you tell an officer, it's very difficult for him to throw you out. Hmm. He either accepts the problem or he finds a political way of getting out of it. Hmm. But you can keep raising the level. You can keep trying different avenues if you're convinced that it is something extremely serious and cannot be allowed to be, you know, just thrown around. Besides, I don't know if it happens nowadays. I'm retired for a very long time. But I know that writing a strong note, like when I was a judicial magistrate, I was trained. And I think many officers may not have had that exposure. Always justify what you're doing. Suppose you're taking a decision. Say these are what the facts put before me. The, if I do this, this will happen. If I don't do this, this will happen. And when you do that in writing, take maybe 20 lines to justify your action. It's very, very difficult for the Central Bureau of Investigation, the Central Vigilance Commission and all those bogies that officers are so, so worried about all the time, which keeps them you know, back. It helps you because it's very difficult to prove anything against you once you've justified it. Hmm. That is the one thing that I was taught by one of my bosses, and I have tried to teach it to anyone. Do not just sign a file. If it's a sensitive matter, express your point of view. Right. Wow, it's such a complex thing to be working in it. And it sounds like there might be also many things you have to let go of at some point, right? Even if you feel very, yes. very strongly, you know, it's the right thing to do. Yes. I know you mentioned that there could be many avenues that you keep bringing up the issue. But has there been an instance where you've had to let go of something after a point, even though you knew that it is really important and critical just because you, you saw that most avenues were shutting off? Yes, when I was in the National Population Stabilization Fund, I realized that I was the first executive director. I had money because the corpus had got a lot of interest, which was just sitting in the bank. And I just felt we had to spend that money. Otherwise, we'd have to start paying income tax. That was one side of it. The second side of it was that you had to work in an area which is population stabilization acceleration. It was not a popular subject. People mm. have this attitude, oh, please leave this population. It's not an issue anymore. I'm talking about the year about 2006, 2007, mm. around that period. 
was a challenge. Now, I do remember that to me, the most important part was that we should bring male sterilization on the front burner because women are being sterilized overwhelmingly in this country, but in rural areas. And governments are only pushing one theme. Let them have two children. Doesn't matter if there's no spacing. Let the girl be 17. It doesn't matter. Just get her sterilized after two children. But that's so wrong. It's so wrong to the second child. It's so wrong to her health and nourishment and anemia levels. It is so wrong to force her into an operation. She's not even uh, 20, 22 years old. So these, this policy to turn it aside was something which I tried extremely hard. I tried to convince even by meeting chief ministers. But I'm sorry, you know, their eyes would glaze over and um, they would just look at me and look at the clock and pick up the phone. And the whole thing was, please get lost. So you realized that you were not going to succeed and you were not going to get any great support from your governing body, the minister or anything, if you try to raise the level and, you know, meet the chief minister and all. With, I, I mean, I do remember I went to two states and made it a mission that I'm going to talk to the chief minister. In one state, it worked. In the other, it was a complete fiasco. So, yes, you have to put up with that. Yeah. And I'm sure that's very challenging because you can see you have the data, you have the evidence, you're talking to people. Yes, yes, and then you still yes. have to, after a point, let go to focus on, on other things. And yes. also, as an officer, you get transferred to so many different departments, right? So how do you build that decision-making, contextual decision-making comfort so quickly? You know, we are trained to, like a sponge, absorb material hmm. given to you. If you ask me to research on a lamppost, I would be able to do that research and in two days give you almost a PhD level paper on right. lampposts hmm. because we are trained to, of course, now you have Google search and you have so many search engines. In right. those days, you would just send for your, let it be a chief engineer, let it be an animal husbandry director, let it be a education director. And you would tell him, I want all the material you can lay hands on. I want the previous files, flag them all for me, what I have to read, highlight it for me. So you would take that home with you and read, read, read. Maybe when I was in the population stabilization fund, I must have read for about a month nonstop every wow. report that had been written. I talked to different people who had been at the helm of affairs. And you know, like a sponge, you take all that information and then you make up your mind, this will work, this will not work. Priority-wise, one, two, three is more important. And that is once you are a master of that subject, which does not take time. If you're intelligent and you have the focus to go after what you are going after, it's not all that difficult. If you are just sit and wait for somebody to feed you information, you will get nowhere. But those officers who have been able to do that, they become masters of the subject. It could be coal. It could be tourism. It could be um, steel. You become a master and then you are able to convince your minister. The first thing is to be able to convince the minister in language he understands. And that mm. is why when there are these big technocrat and bureaucrat fights, what I try to say is the bureaucrat is in no way more intelligent than the technocrat. The technocrat is the one who knows the how of it. He knows the physics of it. You don't know anything about that. All you can do is to be a good communicator. Take the essence 
and convince your minister in language he can relate to. Hmm. Technocrats, I'm sorry, most often don't know that language. They right. tend to get into more and more and more detail. They are so convinced that something has to be done that they often, not not all, we are dependent. Our, our doctors are among the best. Many of our engineers are among the best. They are head and shoulders above IAS officers. I can say that without any hesitation. But I can also say that given the responsibility to convince a minister, to convince maybe unions, you know, there used to be unions and there used to be great breakdowns, you have to negotiate with them. They are not able to do that. You can do that, I mean, much better because of your training, because of your ability to think laterally at many levels. That is what the IAS training and the IAS exposure and many other services also gives to you. To answer your question, it is something where you are able to become master. Once you're a master of a subject, you can convince anybody. If you can convince your minister, you can convince hmm. anybody. Really interesting. And if I go back to the example you gave of the blindness example and the number and volume of surgeries that were conducted then in five years, you had also mentioned that most people had sort of given up or written it off thinking that, okay, it's not happened for so long. Can you sort of help me understand what was different in these two cases? Why didn't it happen before from the predecessor or even before that? And what changed in how it happened after? I don't want to take credit for this, but I do feel that I must tell you the difference in one sense. My predecessor used to rely on the ophthalmologist specialist who was in the ministry, the technical person in charge of ophthalmology. Very well-meaning and a very competent doctor. But she would come and tell me, we've written letters for two years, nobody answers the letters. And I used to say, can I see your letter? So I saw it was just an ordinary I'm directed to say that uh, this is an important subject and it should be given due attention and therefore we would like your comments on when and how this can be done because we feel the following should be done. Nobody's going to pay attention to such a letter and you're using that old cyclostyling machine. Some of the pages can't even be read. No signature can be read. Who's going to answer such a letter? So when I told her this, she said, but we've written the letter. I said, but that's not how a letter should be written. Let me try. So on a DO letterhead, I would start writing in correct, simple English why this matters to your state. What does the prevalence in your state show? How quickly this can be done and how well you can benefit from this for your public. Why don't you take this up? When I wrote the letter, I sent it and followed it up with the trunk call because in those days only STD was available. And I used to say, have you seen my letter? And often I got a very brusque reply that we get hundreds of letters. I used to say, please take the trouble of reading what I've sent you. If you want, I'll fax you another copy. They said, yes, yes, fax another copy. So I would fax the copy and again ring up the next day and say, did you get my fax? That is when the person at the other end felt a little responsible and responsive. So they said, what do you want us to do? I used to say, just, just, you have to come to Delhi and be prepared to be a part of a World Bank project when we try and do this differently. We'll call all the experts from AIMS, from the RP Center in AIMS, and you listen to them about how well this can be done, not me. And we'd call those people. And I must say that when they heard the 
technical advice on why cataract is so simple and but has to be done very professionally very skillfully and why iol is a complete sea change to you know using those big fat glasses they became convinced and once they were convinced they took it like a mission many of them also believe that it gives you a place in the heaven because if you give eyesight to somebody you're really doing something which is a punya as they say in hindi so they took it on and you won't believe it when we went for negotiations to the world bank in washington dc there was a federal holiday declared overnight because it had snowed so much that the roads were completely snowbound and nothing could move so we had to go back on the tuesday and it was already friday and i said we can't go back and not negotiate so i told the project manager can you not somehow hold it in our hotel she said i can come i can bring the legal person but um, what about your officers i said there are all seven of them seven secretaries are in the hotel let's do it in the hotel so she said okay but i'm running a bad uh, temperature and cold but since you're so persuasive i'll try she came she went through a whole box of uh, tissues sitting there because she was running her nose thankfully it wasn't covid times and the legal fellow was sitting on the sofa opposite initially he was a little irritable at being pulled out of his house but then he realized the enthusiasm of the seven officers not my enthusiasm they took over the whole show and the lighthearted part is one of them the uttar pradesh health secretary i still remember her name was sumita kantpal she went to the kitchen she told the chef i will make the lunch because there was nobody in the hotel except us and she took a beer bottle and made the puris and we all had puri and aloo as sabzi and that was our lunch and we got the negotiation done so it was the joint effort of everybody but the first you know seed had to be sown that this is something which you can do for your people you're not doing it exert yourself and that once that was done the officers took it on themselves right it almost sounds like it's very person dependent right that particular officer or for that matter the minister their intent what they are feeling driven towards is that true that it, it is highly person dependent based on which projects work don't work or is there a way to make it more consistent across so that it works in a similar fashion irrespective of the person you know you've asked something which to tell you the real truth of the matter initiative resourcefulness perseverance resilience these are qualities which are either inborn or they come because of some parental influence some teachers influence some bosses influence which gets ingrained in you i was a very giddy person i think first 5 years of my service you know i was very hard working but i didn't i wasn't intoxicated with getting something done i was more mm. interested in i have done the numbers required of me i was not getting deeper than that i must say that i came into contact with two people just two people and when i watched them at work one was a very very humble deputy commissioner who would stand up for anyone who walked into his room let it be a villager from one of the revenue side of delhi we had a lot of rural areas then he would stand up for everyone and mm. he would be 
meticulous in his behavior. He behaved exactly the same with the ordinary person and with when he was talking on the telephone to his boss's boss or something. Second was a person who I found was working 18 hours a day. He was about to go abroad maybe in the next 24 hours with his family because we are all sent on training. And he was still working till three in the morning when the flight was probably at seven in the morning. Then I realized there was an intoxication. He felt that in few hours that I have, I can still do so much to help the schools, to help the headmasters, to help the uh, recruitment of teachers, whatever he was dealing with. And I realized if he can do that, why am I so bothered about my nine hours of sleep and my children and my servants and my, you know, home and my plants and, you know, all that? Can't I give more of myself? So I think in one sense, it is a lesson which you're lucky if you get role models to teach you who influence you. A lot of people have no role models. They think that career means getting a good annual confidential record, climbing the ladder of success, becoming a secretary to government, getting a post-retirement job, and they lose the opportunity because they don't have that inner intoxication. And that comes only through being exposed to people who can influence you. And as I said, it doesn't have to be another officer. It can be just watching maybe a teacher who drilled something into your head, maybe a parent who drilled something. It doesn't have to be in the official. But once you have these four qualities, which is really initiative, resourcefulness, perseverance and resilience, I'm not going to give up. Then only will you really, really make a difference. You may still become a governor. You may become head of some big commission. You may become anything. But you will not have contributed to public betterment, which is a completely different ball game. Mm. And how does a lay person sort of interact with the system? Let's say I do have a grievance. Normally, we would just complain to somebody around family, friends, and then move on. But if you want to move beyond that and saying, no, I have this issue, I have this complaint. How does one a lay person sort of interact with the system, interact with the officers? You know, I think one way which was taught by the then chief minister, which was a government people partnership in which there used to be 36 tables in a huge hall and each table had 12 seats. And in 12 seats, six were of the public representatives, that is the Resident Welfare Association, and six were from the departments, be it water supply, be it municipal schools or whatever it was. The subjects were determined in advance. On Thursday afternoon, everybody met and they were assigned by an NGO who was arranging everything. They would assign people to these 36 tables and they would say, now you as public people, please list all your problems. Whatever you want to say, list them all down. And after they were listed on the next day, Friday morning, the officers were forced to help to funnel those into departmental things, some was sanitation, something was to do with water supply, something was to do with school, something. So you funneled it into three, four. And then on Friday afternoon, the concerned officers, not the officer dealing with that subject, but at a higher level who knew the system, would tell each of these public representatives, these RWAs, you know, if people don't listen to you, this is how you raise the level. This is the kind of letter you write. If you don't get heard, this is how you go higher. 
this is how you work as a group you will be heard much better than working as an individual make it into something you don't give up on so this worked and that concept of rwa has continued even now i'm talking about 2002 4 it's still there in 2021 when covid is going on it is the resident welfare association which manages the homes complains about you know people not wearing masks gives you the numbers of people affected for the locality for the and and the surrounding area so that was one the other brilliant thing was long before the right to information act 2005 came which was a central act delhi had its own delhi right to information act 2002 2001 i think and i was the sole commissioner as the public grievance commission after retirement to be the information officer now under right to information what happened was that say the defense colony rwa would come as a group and ask questions as a group we want to see the tender documents and specifications of the roads which were laid in the defense colony because in one year all the roads have broken we want to take a piece of that road and send it on our own to the sri ram testing laboratory because we fear that they never used adequate cement we want to see the tender documents how did this particular contractor get the contract we want to see and i used to allow it because these were public documents why say no and i would give it you know that completely gave so much confidence so much authority to these resident welfare associations they began asserting themselves and so both with the training they got on this government partnership which was of course it was a big program it wasn't just a one time thing it went around throughout the year and this right to information the two things coming together gave the public without elections without money tremendous authority and people realize that if they have a problem go to the resident welfare association they will take it up with the officer or with the municipal councilor or with the mla or with the chief minister because as a group nobody can say no if you go mm. as a single person they'll make you sit on a bench and meet no one right so interesting to just understand the nuances and also just feels fairly complex still and very person dependent and i'm just wondering how maybe over time it moves to be a little bit more process dependent so that it's easier to understand it's not like one person gets transferred and now you're sort of back to square one in the process but the the system itself takes it forward even if people change uh, is just a thought that i have right now i don't know if you have any reactions to that i think that in one sense we are better off today than we were in my time you know you have access to spreadsheets you have all this data gets funneled in real time if you look at the websites of so many states which tell you how many new cases how many deaths how many whatever it's in real time that information hmm. when i was handling plague in the ministry of health in 1994 i remember we had to wait for facts to come in by the evening we had to assimilate all that you know total it up and things that doesn't happen the computers are there to help you hmm. you have mobile phones you have whatsapp the entire covid in 2020 was being managed on whatsapp Right. You know I mean they had WhatsApp groups for the district for the state for the health side for the municipal corporation sides I have just recently finished working for the Yamuna monitoring committee which was appointed by NGT and I do know that I used to ask them this has happened in the Yamuna this sort of report of pollution has come 
how did you ring alarm bells? They said, we sent WhatsApp messages. So I said, put me as a member of that WhatsApp group. And then I realized that it was working. The WhatsApp messages went to maybe 30 people, but only the key person reacted. Hmm. So you have technology, which is going to overcome this personal factor hugely. Of course, commitment has to be there. Without that, nothing is going to work. Your kitchen will not work. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Is there anything else that's on your mind that you feel you'd like to share at this point before we start winding off? You know, I have given you a very rosy picture, but something that I do feel younger officers and even the public should be aware of, you know, officers are very vulnerable. If you're very successful, you can be stabbed in the back very easily. And you can have people bad-mouthing you, sending complaints which are completely wrong. They're not even having an iota of truth. But the complaint will take a year to be unraveled for somebody to even see whether it had any merit in it. Hmm. Till that time, you are under a cloud of there's a complaint against her. There's an inquiry against her. So you have to be very guarded not to get into trouble by keeping a low profile. If you start becoming too visible or too popular, or the public starts saying you're a fantastic officer, we please don't move him or her because, you know, they have made such a big difference. You can be sure that there would be some animosity, some jealousy, and you'll get derailed. Mm. So that's only, I mean, one side which you talked about these jobs being challenging. Perhaps the biggest challenge is your own internal system. Hmm. that uh, you have to be on your guard, you're not alone, and you have to be humble, and you have to be patient, and you cannot give cause to create even the slightest ripple that you are becoming too big for your boats. Hmm. How do you balance that, though, with, again, trying to find a way to get work done? Because you will have to make some, ruffle some feathers somewhere to sort of like make that issue come in notice. So how do you balance the two? You, you don't, you get into trouble, then you learn the hard way. I know that I, I was uh, riding high and I was uh, completely, you know, besotted with my work. And I was told by some minister, he called me and he said, you're very intelligent. And he flattered me, he says, you have the makings of being cabinet secretary. I was just a joint secretary, I had years to go to ever, you know. But even then he said this to me and we are all human, you flattered. So he said, but you lack one quality. You don't find solutions to problems. So I said, sir, but whatever you've told me, everything has been done. So he said, no, count. How many cases have you not done? So I said, sir, those three cases cannot be done. They're not just irregular, they're illegal. I cannot do it. So he said, the choice is yours. Either you find a way or you get out of the way. So these were his words. So. I went home and I did not do anything about those three matters. He gave me about, I think, 15 days to come to my senses. I did not. And one day I entered the office and I got an order that all my work had been taken away. Everything. I had wow. no work. You know, and that is humiliating because if you have enjoyed so much of authority, power and people relied on you, including the minister, and you find that you have just been made overnight into zero. Hmm. Even the driver would ask me, Abhi aapko koi kaam nahi diya? And Pian who brought the tea, pouring it, he would say, Abhi aapko koi kaam? You were not given any work as yet. 
nine months I had to come to office and go in the evening without any work. It was wow. humiliating. Even my colleagues stopped looking me in the eye because I was in disgrace. So officer in disgrace is to be treated by everybody as though she's in disgrace. I wasn't thrown out of the ministry because in those days, the prime minister may not have agreed because maybe because I was a woman, maybe because I was too junior from their point of view. So let her stew. So I stewed for nine months. And I mean, I felt so bad because I could see that the work that I had started was not moving. My colleagues were not inviting me to the lunch club. There was a pin drop silence when I walked into a room and you felt horrible. You went for a Monday morning meeting when all officers are with the secretary and they would talk about different things and laugh and joke and nobody even looked me in the eye. It was that bad. But then one day I got a telephone call late at night. It was 11 at night and the junior minister's uh, private secretary said, Mubarak ho, congratulations, madam. I said, why? So he said, because the minister has been asked to resign. And he was, uh, <laughs> not because of me, because of something right. else, he, was, he resigned. And he said, your good days are back. And they really came back. And what would have happened if he hadn't resigned, right? So to, to you or to any other officer in such a situation, let's say the minister didn't resign, what would generally happen then? No, then you would just be nobody. Because in the service is very long. I was in the IAS for 38 years. Hmm. And then I've had any number of post-retirement jobs. The cycle is always up and down. You're never going to be going up, 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 up. Hmm. You will face these failures. Failures not of your making, but because of circumstances. And you've got to be prepared for them. You will find inquiries against you. I had three commissions of inquiry against me. Three commissions of inquiry because I was strong and not headstrong, but I certainly was strong. And I wrote very, very sharp notes and I made it difficult for people who were up to no good getting away with it. And so I got into serious trouble because they put complaints against me. Now, I was very, very upset in those days. I used to tell my husband, my children, my mother, and all of them would sort of have this attitude of, please, we've heard your stories. You know, we don't want to hear anything more because they're not interested. They couldn't understand what I was referring to even. So with that kind of a background, you put up with it, but it passes. Something happens and out of the blue, completely, a completely situation takes place. So I would say that every time you look on something as an opportunity, something comes out of it. And if you look on it as something which is, oh, I was meant for better things. I'll give you one last example, which uh, since maybe your time is running out. No, please go ahead. Um, I, this example will strike you. I had been in the health ministry coming and going and all that health sector in Delhi, in Manipur, in Goa, and then coming back and being in the government of India as joint secretary. So together I'd had a long innings in health. And when I got first promoted, not that I wanted to be the union health secretary, because that I was too junior to be given that on first promotion. But I was made secretary in charge of Ayurveda, homeopathy, Yunani, yoga, and all that. In those days, remember, it was a complete zero as a department. It was a department of the health ministry and very low key. So I met the cabinet secretary and I said, sir, but my background is in a way wasted, you put me in a department which is really almost non-existent. So he said, you've been put there to work. Now just go. No one's going to change the order. 
So I came out and tears were hurting because it was like all your colleagues saying, oh, but you've been wasted, such a good officer, such a lot of experience. And imagine putting you in Ayush, you know, Indian Systems of Medicine, it was called then. And something told me, you better make the best you can. And, you know, those three years in that department were for me one of the best periods of my career. I went to so many hospitals and teaching colleges and private practitioners and government practitioners. And I saw a face of Ayurveda, Yunani, Siddha, yoga, naturopathy. I was not aware that the public still depends on these systems. And for certain things, they know they don't depend on it for everything. And I learned about it. And then I took it out of mothballs. I was able to because nobody had done anything, anything that I did, Sean. So I was queening over that department for three years and I enjoyed and learned so much. And now when people make disparaging comments about Ayush, I'm the first to say you're talking nonsense. You know, the public has gained so much and it is something. Let's not be. I mean, I'm not being nationalistic. I'm just being realistic. That's a lovely lesson of just making the most of the opportunity and converting whatever you've given into something great. Thank you for sharing that. I was forced that. to. I, I mean, I was forced, I was not keen to. But then I didn't want people's pity. Everyone who met me, oh, you poor thing that put you in this Indian systems. You poor thing. I could not stand that. And then, of course, we took the prime minister, the then prime minister to New York. We went to the World Health Assembly. We set up a huge traditional knowledge digital library in six UN languages for patent uh, protection. Right. So uh, finally, I just want to hear from you, like from your wealth of experience and dealing with these complex situations, which are all gray, right? Like where your values, leadership, the balancing act of priorities and not, you know, being too seen. So many different things in the role, apart from just the pure work. What advice do you have that you'd like to share to anyone listening? I would say in whatever you do, somebody has a problem and it has been brought to your notice. That problem has some reason why it exists. Somebody is benefiting from creating that situation and maybe more people are suffering by the creation of that situation. That has a solution. The solution lies sometimes in government, sometimes outside government. Sometimes it lies in a way where persuasion is needed. Sometimes you need to use the stick. Sometimes you need to get people together to voice feeling. Issues which matter, if they are going to hurt a larger group of people, you have to use your presence well. And don't use it only because you're in the IAS. You can write that letter. You can make a phone call. You can keep a record. You can use Twitter. It's when you assert yourself, you create documentation, you pursue this. You have to be in the right. You can't be in the wrong and be doing it. But if you are in the right, you're convinced that something wrong is being done. I don't think that we should be so frustrated and so helpless. But you have to be patient, write a sensible letter, keep to the point and follow it up. The computer gives you all the chances to keep on and on having email exchange, raise the level. When you write from the bottom of your heart and you appeal to somebody and show that you have been pursuing it and you're capable of pursuing it further, 
nobody will be able to be unfair but you have to have the time the patience and the perseverance to get on with it fantastic on that note chelaja thank you so much for this time that you've spent i think there are so many ideas thoughts questions that i'm left with that i know i'm going to want to read up more about or maybe come back to you another time with many more questions but really appreciated all the insights and wisdom that you've shared with us and thank you for taking me out of the woodwork and finding something interesting to hear from me it was a pleasure talking nobody has given me such a long stretch to talk and talk <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you so much thank you so much for listening to this episode if you liked this episode do subscribe to the podcast and follow us on instagram facebook twitter or linkedin we'd love to hear your suggestions reactions or even guest nominations You can DM us on Instagram our handle is at a new kind of celebrity or email us at a new kind of celebrity at gmail.com We look forward to meeting you soon till then good luck and take care